time to talk a little farm. Last episode, we were at an herb farm in New Jersey that turns perennials into plant medicine. I thought we might stay in the Garden State, New Jersey that is, for another week to save on gas. You down? We travel this week to Pittstown, New Jersey to Spring Run Dairy, about 60 miles from New York City in one direction and 60 miles from Philadelphia in the other. This story is a bit of a fairy tale with storied cows and at least one crown. A love story with cows. I am so glad that you're here to talk a little farm. Talk Farm to me is one of the only places you can have a heart-to-heart with a real farmer to get the inside scoop and begin to see the big picture of farming, one farm at a time. The story of Spring Run Dairy will connect you to previous episodes of Talk Farm to Me so you can see all sides of dairy and also soil health and how the pandemic impacted farming in general. I will mention each connected episode as we go, but be sure to check the show notes for links so that you can have a whole milk kind of understanding of farming and dairy farming today. At the center of Spring Run Dairy are Dan and Sarah Linus, a young couple forging their way with a dairy farm in a state where dairy has all but disappeared. I will chime in to help along the way, but let's get the conversation going with the lawyer and dairy farmer, Sarah Linus. One of our most wholesome foods. Our farm, Spring Run Dairy, it is the dairy farm and the creamery are owned and operated by me and my husband, Dan, although I do work off the farm full-time as an attorney. So he's the one on the farm full-time and in the creamery full-time. It is especially good for the health of young children. Already I am chiming in here. When Sarah says creamery, she's talking about a very special on-farm facility where they process the milk from their cows for direct sale to consumers. Many farmers send their milk to a processor to do this work for them. But more and more small dairy farms are investing in their own creameries. ...and milked by dairy farmers who earn their living by selling milk. We farm on about 126 preserved acres in central New Jersey, which is, I I always laugh when I tell people in anticipation of of their laugh because I don't think people typically think that about New Jersey. Isn't it the Garden State? It is, and deservedly so, because we have some beautiful, beautiful farmland, and people grow some wonderful produce here, but people just, for whatever reason, they just don't, don't think of New Jersey that way. You and your husband and 120 acres, and you said preserved. What does that mean? So New Jersey has a pretty robust farmland preservation program. So over the years, they've worked with local farmers and and landowners to preserve farmland. 
And that is just a program where, you know, you are committing to keeping your land as, as farmland and not developing it for other purposes. And there's certain things you can and cannot do with it, but they all focus on preserving and protecting farmland to keep it as open farmland. So that our farm is, is part of that program, which has been really nice to be part of that. Most of what we do is just focusing on how we can protect and preserve our land for the future and, and keep it a thriving part of the community. So um, this is just one more step and, and program you can participate in to, to help achieve those goals. So that is, is pretty nice. But actually, Dan was not the one that did that. Dan is the third generation Linus man to, to farm this property. His grandparents purchased it. And then now his, his parents are there. So he and his dad farm together. And his mom is also involved pretty heavily in the creamery. She is kind of the brains behind the creamery operation. She, you know, organizes the orders and sets the schedule and does most of the manual labor in the creamery as well. So it's mostly just the four of us, but I honestly can't even take credit because I'm not on the farm full time during the week. So they do a lot of it and I just try to pick up and help where I can on the weekends and, and evenings sometimes. So explain to me some of the, some of your roles there. Most of the animal care responsibility on the farm falls to Dan. He's at the barn every morning milking. He feeds all of the cows every day. If any animals are sick, he is kind of the first line of defense. We do have some wonderful vets in New Jersey, but there's not a lot of vets. And most of the farms are calling a, a small group of vets. So Dan really tries to do what he can just because... You know, sometimes you have to do things yourself. So he's always there taking care of the animals. So he does the feeding, the bilking, the care, and pretty much anything else animal related on the farm. I try to help with feedings on the weekends and, and there's some things I can help with. Same with his parents helping with feedings. His dad is usually right in there with him on some of like the animal care tasks, but most of it falls on Dan. So that's that's really his job. He's at the farm, sun up, sun down. He's really the go-to guy on the farm. And then his dad helps a lot with the crops. Like I said, some animal care helping and, and, and is an integral part of the farm as well. That's the cool thing is because it's family, right? Everyone has different roles, but you know everyone's also pitching in on everyone else's role. So it really wouldn't work without everyone. And then Dan's mom helps with feedings, really helps in any way she can, but really has taken the creamery business and, and really you know, just done some wonderful things with it. I think we knew going into starting our own creamery that it was going to be a lot of work. And I think we took a lot of time to do some market research and we ran numbers every day until we thought we couldn't run numbers anymore. But I guess you learn a lot once you start doing it, right? It's never exactly how it works out on paper. So I would say Dan's mom has really filled in those gaps and, and helped us do the things that we were not prepared to do and, and do a lot of the work. So she is we like to say the brains behind the creamery because I don't I don't know how we would do it without her. She basically is running it and it's it's pretty awesome and we're so lucky to have such great people that are that are helping helping us run this creamery because it, it wouldn't happen without them. The large level fields are especially suited to the use of machinery. In spite of a short growing season, the climate is good for feed crops. This green feed is then stored in a silo to be fed as silage. Most of the silage is used in winter when pasture... So the farm started under Dan's grandparents and then his parents took it over and now you guys are 
coming in line there. Obviously, Dan is very involved. The interesting history on the farm is when Dan's grandfather and grandmother purchased the property, they farmed the property, but it was not a dairy farm. I mean, they didn't operate it as a dairy farm, right? We actually have a pretty cool historic dairy barn on the property that still has the foundation of a dairy barn. You can walk in it and see. So the property had been operated that way, but that's not why his grandparents came into it. And then when his dad started farming the property, it was a lot of crop farming and he had beef cattle. And then Dan grew up crop farming, doing the beef cow thing, went to college and fell in love with dairy farming. This is an understatement. You will see what I mean in a few minutes. So he actually built the dairy barn on the property in 2013. So he's the third generation on the farm, but first generation dairy farmer. And then I got into dairy a very different way. So it just kind of worked out that we found each other and are now trying to take the dairy farm into the next next decade and, and see what we can make of it. Okay, do tell. How did you get into dairy? <laughs> so I grew up about 30 minutes south of where our farm is located now. And it's very rural still, lots of farmland. But my, my parents grew up in northern New Jersey, in like the suburbs up there. No experience with farming really at all. My parents moved out this way when they were married. My mom is a teacher. So they moved out this way for one of her teaching jobs and started a family. And actually the house I grew up in is across the street from another dairy farm. And that farm had kids similar in age to me and my siblings. So, you know, we would play with them during the summer. And I just, I thought it was so cool. I, I just, it was awesome, right? Like who doesn't love cows? I just, it was a very random thing, but I, I loved it. And then just, I guess, fate, you could call it. The area I grew up in was very big into 4-H and FFA. So I got involved in FFA in school. And then I just, all my friends were in 4-H. So it just, I thought it was the cool thing to do. Both 4-H and FFA are national youth organizations that engage young people on leadership skills, personal growth, and career success with underpinnings in agriculture. 4-H the H's stand for Head, Heart, Hands, and Health, serves 6 million young people nationwide. Still, FFA now goes by its three initials, but started out as Future Farmers of America. So I remember begging my parents, like, you've got to let me join the Dairy 4-H Club. And my parents, they were like, what are you talking about? And I said, I'm going to lease a cow. I'm, I'm going to show a cow. They had no idea what I was talking about, but they, they let me do it. They were very supportive. A couple of years later, my sister got involved. A couple of years after that, my sister and I started buying our own cows. We were boarding them somewhere. I've been involved with the Dairy Princess program. It just, it all kind of spiraled into something wonderful, but it was definitely like this spiral. I got hooked. Did you hear how she slipped that in so quickly? Dairy Princess? <laughs> I was involved in a bunch of different programs, and, and now I actually run our County Dairy Princess program. And I happened to take our County Dairy Princess to the Hunterdon County Farmers Businessman Picnic, which is something that our County Board of Ag puts on, which was hosted at Dan's Farm. And that's where we met. So we both took very different paths to get involved in dairy, but that's how it, it brought us together. And and now we're ready to take take over the dairy world. <laughs> Okay, I love this story, but you have got to like just step back and tell me what a dairy princess is. 
So a dairy princess is an advocate for the dairy industry. It's a program that's run by American Dairy Association Northeast, which is our local checkoff program. The checkoff program is part of the American Dairy Association. It applies taxes paid on dairy to promote dairy, with princesses in part, and conducts research and nutrition education statewide as well. And they run this program and it's about, it's evolved over the years. Now it's an advocacy program for everyone, but this Dairy Princess program that they run, it's just, it's a program for young women involved in the dairy industry to take on a leadership and advocacy role. So it is a competition, but it's not a beauty pageant. I can see why people ask that. Sarah is the real deal, smart, articulate, passionate about dairy and beautiful too. I always have to tell people that it's about your public speaking, your knowledge. You have to take like a knowledge quiz. There's an interview process. You do a skit that's targeted at like school age children. So something that I did as the dairy princess was go into schools and do this program for kids to talk about dairy and dairy farming and and the benefits of, of dairy products. So you do all of this in this competition. And then at the end, they pick the dairy princess. And then for the next year, you're tasked with advocating for your state's dairy industry. And it's one of the best experiences of my life. I got to attend so many different functions and and events to talk about dairy. And it's it's really cool because it's, you know, as a young woman, it was my real first experience in like the professional networking world and talking with at 17 what adults, which probably were my age then that I am now. But it just was so cool to get to talk about something I love on such like a professional platform. And I think it's opened a lot of doors for me and it taught me a lot. I I met so many people I probably wouldn't have met otherwise. And like I said, it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. And I highly encourage and recommend the the program to, to everyone that can participate. So you were New Jersey's Dairy Princess? Yes, I was in in 2010. (laughs) You're going to get me pictures. I'm going to get you pictures. (laughs) Did you have a sash? I did, sash and crown. I still have it in a box in my closet. (laughs) Oh, my. I Okay, I said that, like, I've talked to a lot of farmers, and I've heard a lot of stories, and I hear a lot of similarities, but this is not... This has not come up yet. I can't believe I'm talking to a dairy princess. This is like, it's even better than a Disney princess. I have to admit, I was a little starstruck finding out that Sarah was a princess. So fun, right? Because we come with chocolate milk, what could be better? Oh my gosh. And do you did you win it with a certain cow or it's just you talking about the dairy? Do you have to show a cow to do it? No, there's no cow showing involved. It's just really a leadership and advocacy program. So you're judged on your knowledge, right? How much do you know? Can you express it in an impactful way? You do the interview to a panel of judges where they kind of put you on the spot and ask you the tough questions, right? Because I think as farmers, if we know anything, it's that consumers have tough questions and you have to be able to answer them, right? So part of the interview is them asking you these tough questions because 
a lot of the events that you do are consumer facing. So you need to be prepared to answer those questions. So that's a big part of it is how well can you respond to those and just public speaking. And I'd like to think that they saw I was really passionate about the industry and and thought I'd be a good representative. So I, I think that has hopefully something to do with it as well. What are some of the tough questions that dairy farmers face with the consumers and with the public? right, Betty. All dairy farms want to keep their barns clean, and their cows too. Is that why you're washing the cow? Every morning and evening, George, just before they're milked. This is one way we help to make sure the milk is always pure and wholesome, and good tasting too. See those pipes I think some of the toughest questions that we get center around safety, food safety, which is fair as consumers, right? We want to know where our food is coming from and how it's made. So I think those are all very fair and valid questions. I think the tough part is the education piece, because for so long, if you weren't involved in, I'll just use dairy farming specifically, just because that's what I know best. But so if, if you were involved in dairy farming, right, you didn't really know what was going on behind the product. All you knew is that you could go to the store and, and get your milk. So I think the tough part is, is there's an education piece and it's, our responsibility to share with them, this is what we do, and this is why we do it, and this is why we know your food is safe, because we do X, Y, and Z to get it there, and we do that because of these reasons, and it's safe. So I think that's the tough part, is it's not as simple as just sharing with consumers, we do this and your food is safe, right? There's so much more you have to share, because there's so much that people don't know about about farming and dairy farming and, and the food industry. So I think that's probably where it gets the, the most challenging is just knowing that you have to take a step back and, and share maybe a little of the backstory before you just tell someone, oh, I know your food is safe. Now, there's been maybe more pushback against dairy in the last 10 years or so, maybe even more intensely in the last five. Like, we don't need milk. I used to drink, I mean, I used to drink so much milk as a kid. Like, I think that's what was always on the dinner table. I mean, I'm a grown up now, so it's mostly in my coffee, but I mean, I eat cheese and all that. So I'm just curious what do you think is going on on the dairy front? I mean, you guys are one of the targets for, oh, we don't, we don't need to eat dairy anymore. Right. I think the misconceptions about dairy stem from a couple of different places, but I think a lot of it boils down to we just have so many food choices, right? I don't know if there's ever been a time in the world where people have access and choices to so many options, right? You made a comment before about when you were growing up, milk was the only thing on your dinner table. I mean, it was the same for, for me, right? That's, I don't really remember having another beverage option, right? I I, I do remember in the summer, my dad would grill and we'd have pink lemonade and it was always wanted to be the one to stir the pink lemonade powder in the pitcher, right? Like that was like a big deal for us because we drank milk and Now, I think more than ever, people just have so many choices. There's so many beverage options out there that you can pick probably a new drink to have with every meal every day for the rest of your life. So it's definitely a crowded space, right? When it comes to promoting 
your beverage as the beverage of choice. And, and I think another challenge and, and, and the misconception really came from a couple of people with large platforms sharing their thoughts and opinions on dairy, which is fair and valid, right? We all have them. I think everyone's entitled to have their opinions and thoughts and make their choices, but they had these platforms and they pushed it. And, and so people went with it. And I think that's where farmers and dairy farmers have the most room to make up, right? I think there's so many of us on these platforms, social media, Instagram, Facebook, now sharing our story, but we're behind because it took us a little bit longer to realize that we also needed to get on our platforms and and share our side of the story with people. And I, I do think it's making a difference, but I think we were a little behind in getting there, which is maybe why there's been so many misconceptions perpetuated out there just because we maybe weren't as quick to respond with with our side of the story and what, what we think of as the truth out there. It's just, I think probably the choices and our slow time to catch up have probably have probably allowed the misconceptions maybe to to go on for, for so long. I'm curious about the switch from beef to dairy. I understand Dan had a passion for dairy from going to school and well, and then he meant a dairy princess. So good <laughs> Lord, he's got to go in that direction. But uh, if New Jersey is sort of slim on dairy, I know you're not top 10. I, I'm not sure where New Jersey falls, but very, very far down the bottom. <laughs> the latest number I saw is we have 35 dairy farms in New Jersey. Wow. I'm sure you, this is not a, the news to you, but you know, dairy's really been struggling nationwide, especially small dairy farms. And I'm not sure how many cows you all have, but I've interviewed a number of dairy operations, some that have pivoted to do other things and others that are just sort of like barely hanging on in the small space. And then obviously in the bigger space, it's really hard to compete. That's got to be, I mean, it can't just be a passion decision. There's got to be a business decision in there somewhere. I think it's a combination of both. So uh, I think for Dan, the passion started in college. He went to Delaware Valley University and got involved in their dairy science program. That's what his degree is in. So I think for him to grow up crop farming and, and raising beef cattle and then to get to college and, and be introduced to dairy and say, this is what I want my degree to be in. This is what I want to do. He started milking a small herd of Jersey cows in college. He started then and with the plan that upon graduation, he would build his farm. I think that's where the passion came in. I don't, I don't think that you could, I don't think anyone would maybe choose any career path if they weren't passionate about it. So I think it started with passion. I think after a couple of years, right, of, of being in the business and then the two of us trying to see like, where are we taking this? What's our path forward? You know, we're putting all this time and effort and blood, sweat and tears and, into this farm and these animals was our choice. And I don't think we'd, I wouldn't make a different choice. And I don't think he would either. But I think we looked around and we said, you know, what are we doing? Like, how can we take this to the next level? Like, there's got to be a better way, right? And for us, the switch actually, oddly enough, came during the initial phase of COVID quarantine. There was so much uncertainty. And I think a big part of the uncertainty was right our food system. Pandemic farming. Oof, what a time. Farms and farmers were at the nexus of everything. If you haven't already, you should listen to episode six, Farmers Pivoting Under Duress, but also Finding a True Farmer Spot. It's so good. And also, 
Listen to episode 9 with Joel Salatin to take a look at yourself through a farming guru's lens. I will put them in the show notes so you can find them easily. I think a long-term goal of ours had always been a creamery. I love the public speaking aspect and, and agritourism has always been something that I've been very interested in. And Dan is definitely more into the animal dairy side. I mean, he's a dairy farmer, so that makes sense. So I think we knew a creamery was kind of like the perfect combination of the aspects of dairy farming we were both most passionate about. But, you know, when we were doing that, who knows? But when COVID hit and we looked around and we saw this and, you know, at the same time, we'd kind of been evaluating our future on the farm together. Spring Run Dairy is not the only dairy doing this. I interviewed Kyle Clark of Clark Dairy Farms. Check out episode 11, which I did live on Instagram, to hear how a creamery basically saved his multi-generational New York dairy farm. You are going to be such a dairy expert after this. It was a decision we made pretty quickly. Honestly, we kind of went for it right away, which was a little scary, but it ended up working out. And, you know, that is really what the objective is with the creamery is to kind of tie it all in together, bringing a local food system together, being transparent so people can see where their food is coming from, getting to meet us, opening the farm up. And then trying to make a viable business out of it. it. It's come together very well. It was a little scary in the beginning because we kind of jumped in right away. But I'd like to think that most small business owners probably understand and feel and have, have been there themselves, right? So that's, I think, where the passion and business is combined. Right. And are you selling milk mostly there locally in New Jersey? Yes. So we're about one year in, a little over one year into this. Right now, we just sell our own bottle fluid milk in white and chocolate. We have a variety of bottle sizes. But in New Jersey, right, it's illegal to sell raw milk. So our milk is pasteurized, non-homogenized. And right now, we sell in New Jersey. So we wholesale to a, a bunch of different markets and places. And then we do have our own farm store that we're slowly growing. We have a, a nice, loyal, local customer base, which has been awesome. We've met so many of our neighbors who didn't even know that there was a dairy farm right down the road. But now they come to us every weekend for their milk and we sell another farm down the road does eggs. So we've added a couple of other local products, but it's been awesome to meet people. And it's probably one of the coolest parts about the whole creamery business is just connecting with people and, and knowing that they value the local food product that you're putting out there. I think that's kind of what a local creamery does though, right? It puts you kind of on the map in your local community. Yeah, definitely. Now, you mentioned something about not wanting to undercut the local community in terms of your price, but there's pricing challenges across the U.S. Federal milk marketing orders are so complicated, but basically they set prices for milk across regions. For a really smart dissection of this, you've got to hear from Mark Stevenson of the University of Wisconsin in episode 17. The show notes for this episode are going to be full of links. Don't miss really knowing what's going on, okay? Off my soapbox, <clears throat> Dairy Crate, back to Sarah. Then sometimes I'm sure New Jersey with only 35 dairies is importing milk from other states like Wisconsin or so give, yeah. me, give me a sense for the milk landscape in New Jersey and where you fit in. So there's 35 dairy farms in New Jersey. I w believe 
that we are one of two dairy farms that have our own on-farm creamery that are bottling milk. There's another dairy farm that I can think of off the top of my head that bottles milk. They were outsourcing it, but are actually in the works of, of building their own creamery, which is really cool. Super excited for them. But other than that, I don't think that there are any others that are bottling and selling their own milk. Most So most of the milk sales right in New Jersey are, are from more traditional venues like grocery stores and large scale farm markets and things like that. But one cool thing that I actually didn't know was a passion of mine until later on when I was in law school was just the, I don't know, to use a blanket term, the injustices in the food system. And one thing that I've, I've done a lot of research on and, and read about and have thought a lot about is the inequality in the food system. And, and one thing that really upsets me is this fear-based marketing where food with certain labels, right, is supposed to be better for you or whatever. When I think at the end of the day, it's just we want people to have good food choices. And so something that has been important to me and has been a focal point of this is I, I, I see in stores, and I, I think we all probably have the basic understanding that these foods with certain buzzword labels come at a premium. They come at a price point premium. And I don't think that's fair. Um, and I don't think that's right. And I think it's pricing people out of food that they should have access to. And so a big part of this creamery for us was giving our local community a local food at a price point that everyone could afford. I have a really hard time with increasing prices to a place where our neighbors can't afford the milk that we're selling. I just think that totally defeats the entire purpose of being part of your local food system. I think being part of your local food system should mean that your community can partake in what you're providing. And so, it's been a little tough, right? Everything is very expensive. Our, the price of our bottles just went up. Obviously, the price of everything is is going up, but it's just, you know, I, I feel very strongly, and, and as does Dan, you know, it's a kind of a core principle of what we're doing here. We don't want to price out our community from this local product. Can you feel her passion? I can. I do worry, though, about their longevity. Dairy is a cutthroat business. The Linuses are not competing against the neighbors they are looking out for. They are competing against the big dairies across the nation that are selling milk into Spring Run Dairy's local supermarkets. What does your milk sell for in comparison to, say, milk on the supermarket shelf? So we sell a half gallon of our whole white milk for $3.75. And a half gallon of our whole chocolate milk sells for four four twenty five. That's an off of our farm store. Our wholesale prices are a little different. We don't tell people what they can and cannot retail our milk for that sell other other places. But that's what we sell our milk for off this off the farm store. I checked in my local grocery store just for comparison. This store sells so many versions of milk that it was impossible to count them and not get in the way of other customers. Milks with the special labels that Sarah refers to, organic, grass, milk, and milk from local farms, and big corporations too. The prices ranged from $7.29 a half gallon to $4.49. And we did take a look about a month ago at our costs, just because, like I said, the price of bottles have gone up, price, price of everything has gone up, but we just didn't feel like it warranted a price increase at this point just because we're happy with the, 
the people that we have coming to the farm and, and we'd like to, you know, keep the product available to them. What's the deal with your cream line milk? Is that hard to educate people on? Yes. So we sell cream line milk and what that means is the milk is not homogenized. Homogenized. Do you remember what this means? It means made uniform, and in the case of milk, it means that it is processed so that the fat or the cream is emulsified so it does not separate from the rest of the milk. Naturally, though, there is a separation between the cream and the milk. The fatty cream sits on top, and you can see the line where they are basically stacked one on top of the other. So your traditional milk that you're going to find at a grocery store, or some creameries choose to homogenize milk too, just because that's what people are used to is, but the homogenization process breaks down the fat, it suspends it, right? So when you buy milk from a grocery store, typically what you're seeing is a, you know, it's a mixed, I guess I wouldn't say mixed product. The fat is, so the cream is suspended in the milk, so it's a blended product. You don't see any cream rising to the top, it just is your milk product. And that's what most people are used to. Because our product is not homogenized, when it sits and sits in the our cooler, you can see a cream line at the top. All the cream is rising to the top. And so there is definitely an education piece, right? Because people aren't used to that. So you have to explain like, no, it's not, it's not bad. It's not sour. It's supposed to be this way. Just shake it before you drink it and it'll and it'll be fine. So it definitely did require a lot of upfront education. We actually made the decision to push out like a brochure to all of our wholesale customers in the farm store, probably for like the first eight months of sales that they could provide to their customers. Just we can't obviously be at every retail location to talk to people, but we knew that there was going to be an education piece behind it. Um, so I think that's worked very well. I would say we've done a lot of education on social media about what a cream line product is. And generally the reception has been very good. People have great questions and, and they're excited by it. We have a lot of people that will come and, and they'll skim the cream off the top for their coffee and then drink the milk separately as like a 1% or, or skim product. And they're always excited to tell us about that, which is awesome. We love to hear how they're using the milk, but yeah, it definitely requires some education. I think that's something we'll probably always have to do. But to be honest, we don't mind because we love talking about milk. So <laughs> it works out in the long run. Well, you have a long history of talking about milk. I love it. Are you, just in terms of New Jersey and having a slim dairy community there, what kind of resources are hard to come by as a dairy farm that you need? Besides the veterinarians. Think, yeah, yeah. Our vet, yeah, our vets are great, we, but we could always use more and just because in an emergency, right? I, of course, everyone has an emergency at the, at the same time. Of course. But I think the resources part that's been the hardest for us to deal with is just like the tools of the trade to operate a dairy farm. And on our farm and most farms, you use a lot of technology, right? Like the milking system, although it's a very manual process of putting the milkers on, there's a vacuum pump, milk lines, the bulk tank, all of these pieces. If something breaks and Dan can't fix it, well, we're in a, in a bad way because we don't have a shop down the road that can come, come work on this. When I run into farmers at the supermarket checkout line or at the gas pump, there is nearly always a joke about doing more mechanics than farming. So if you're a farmer and you can't fix equipment, you're going to need to up your game. 
I would say we're lucky compared to maybe some other dairy farms. We sit pretty close to a highway in New Jersey that feeds right out to Pennsylvania. So we're actually not that far from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is a big dairy hub. So I guess we're lucky in the sense that we do have a lot of mobile services that are willing to drive the hour and a half to us. So that I think has probably been our saving grace is that we are relatively close to a hub that's pretty easy for us to get to. But I mean, as far as like buying just the supplies, we have to rely on a mobile truck service that stops at the farm once a month with supplies. And if we have to order ahead of time, if there's something specific or if we forget something or we're out of luck until next month, right? So I would say it's pretty hard to come by the supplies that you need. Obviously the internet, right? Makes that a little bit easier too, but between the supplies and then sometimes it's just like the network of dairy farmers, right? I think probably all farmers can relate. It's a tough profession. And sometimes it's just nice to talk to people that understand. And because there's just not a lot of farmers generally in New Jersey and even fewer dairy farmers, sometimes it can be hard to find that community. Everyone in the state is so nice. And so it's great when we do see people, but sometimes it, you know, it can be hard. You just don't have a lot of neighbors that are doing and going through the same things that you are. But I will say, obviously social media has kind of made that better because I think we do connect with people that way. So it's even if you can't see them in person, it's nice to see like, oh, there are other people out there that are going through this and living the same thing. Let's talk about Bert. Because you said that you guys are involved in some kind of research with regard to the soil that you have. And I imagine that's connected to the protection of your land and whatnot. But I'm very curious to hear what what's going on and why it's important. Dan is really passionate about soil preservation and soil health. He geeks out over it, if you if you will. But so he's always looking to do new things, different things, try new techniques. Because I think, I don't know, I think when you're farming family ground, right, you feel a responsibility to protect and preserve it and make sure that it's there in a good way for the next generation. So I think he takes that responsibility pretty seriously. So many farmers are attacked personally and from an industry perspective on environmental matters. And if I may comment here from Talking Farm with so many farmers, they care deeply about protecting the land and the environment. They live so close with it and rely on it to be strong and vibrant for their animals and their crops. And we will get into this in future episodes, but farmers are the ones with the opportunity to regenerate the land. Just listen to Farmer Joe Evans of Evans and Evans Sheep Farm. They rotationally graze Katahdin sheep. Or talk with Will Harris of White Oak Pastures, who totally transformed his multi-generational farm with various species and rotational grazing. If you are missing this about farming, it's something you should connect with. It's a powerful asset for helping and repairing environmental problems. Okay, I am done now. So he got involved with this research program through North Jersey RCD. They're a soil conservation group in North Jersey, and they work with farms of all kinds, all sizes to do different programs and they have some grant funding. North Jersey RCND or Resource Conservation and Development is a nonprofit organization that is dedicated to fulfilling community needs through conservation. But he is participating in this research program where they incorporate different cover crops every year. 
A cover crop is a crop of grasses or grains or a combination that is grown for soil protection and enrichment. It helps to keep out the threat of unwanted weeds and also adds essential nutrients to the soil. And it's basically just trying different cover crops and then um, using different methods to plant your crops in, in conjunction with these cover crops to see what's best for the soil. So it's probably best if I just give an example. So last year, I guess two years ago at this point, he planted a, a new cover crop variety that he worked with this group to pick out. It was a mix of like seven different things. And he, they, they strategically picked which fields it would go in based on what he thought he would be planting there in the spring. So they planted it. They took soil samples, ran their tests to see where the levels of of everything was. They ran a couple of different tests throughout the year, like while it was growing. Dan did a couple of like observational assignments. He just reported on how it was growing, what it looked like to him, if there were any differences across the fields based on what had been previously planted there. And then when it came time to plant, like for example, he planted soybeans that we use as cow feed in one of these fields. And what they did was they killed off half of the field and then left the other half green. And then he planted soybeans into the entire field. And then they were comparing how did the crop grow in one half of the field where they had gotten rid of the cover crop, right? And then in the other half where he planted into like lush green fields. And then so they did more observational tests, more soil samples, yield tests, right? Did one half of the field yield better overall? How did it go? And they're doing it again this year. And the objective is to just ultimately come to a conclusion and, and a best practices recommendation on what is best for the soil. You know, what in terms of nutrient management, is there one method or one cover crop or one combination of cover crop and crop that worked best? So it's it's not trial and error because I think it all generally is good. But the focus is ultimately after a couple of years of trying different combinations and tests is just to see. Is there something that works best or can we, can we tell a, a difference between one way versus the other? And I will say Dan loves it. It's probably one of the highlights of the year for him is when he can go out and make his observations and talk about, oh, this field did better than this field. And I, I think I did this better this time. So it's been awesome for him. I'm, he really likes it. And, and I think overall the results have, have been really good. And so your growing crops, are, are those crops all to feed the cows or... Is there grass for the cows or are you selling crops in addition? It's a, a little bit of everything. Our, our crop work is a, is a combination. So we grow all of our own feed for the cows. So it's soybeans, corn silage corn, which is the corn that we chop for the corn silage for them. And then we do some grain corn for them. Hay, that gets mixed in. We have to do wet hay and dry hay. Dan rotates in wheat occasionally, and the wheat is not for the cows, but we use the straw for bedding. And so the primary objective every year, right, is to grow enough to feed the cows for the year. We milk 50 cows, give or take, depending on the time of year, and then probably have another about another 50 head total on the farm. So it's about 100 animals that we're responsible for feeding throughout the year. So that's the primary objective with the crop farming. And then Dan does do some extra crop farming to just sell as a cash crop. But the primary objective is to make sure that there's enough feed to go around for the cows. And then, so we're not a pasture-based dairy. Our cows do go out on pasture as probably mo most farms do. And they obviously eat grass while they're out there, right? But we do feed our own GMO-free mix of feed when they come in 
come in the barn for milking. So they're out on pasture, but I don't like to say we're a pasture-based dairy because that's not that pasture is not their primary food source. Their primary food source on our farm is the mix of the corn and soybeans and, and haylage that we're mixing and, and feeding for them. And are you guys breeding year-round? Do you have a season that you've got calves coming in or is it is it sort of sprinkled throughout the year? It is sprinkled throughout the year. We don't we don't operate on a season. We have calves on the farm all of the time. It works well for us just because I think we have so much going on between the crop farming and then obviously now the creamery. So to have one season of calving probably would be too much for us. So it's nice to to have it throughout the year. But we're we're probably a little bit more lax or, or flexible with our breeding program just because we are a smaller farm. So it doesn't have to be some regimented thing. It's just kind of a, you know, flexible program for us, which is definitely not how most dairy farms operate, but it works well for us. Now that you have your creamery up and running and you've got, you've got your regular milk and your chocolate milk, (laughs) cream line milks, what, what's next? Cheese. Cheese is definitely next for us. The hard thing about cheese, which maybe other people knew, but I don't, I didn't know, is that uh, it takes a lot of skill to make cheese. And I feel like if you're, no one wants to eat bad cheese, right? So you need to be skilled at making cheese to make a viable business out of it. So we're actually hoping, we're talking to a couple of people about coming in and, and working with us to like make cheese for us, but also teach us at the same time so that ultimately we can do it ourselves. But there are a couple of places where we could outsource that. Are you are you still doing dairy cow competition? Yes. So <laughs> I would say that as dairy farmers, our hobbies are not super diverse because our main hobby is going to cow shows. But I guess it makes sense, right? We spend all day with cows. Why not make that our hobby too? But yes, Dan and I really enjoy going to cow shows. It's a little harder now than it was before. Now that we have a creamery and and, and that going on. But I would say like summer and fall are probably like our busiest times for that. And we, we do okay. We're definitely not the best out there, which is fine because it's it's just... It's a nice time for us to do something like separate from business. And it's fun to have a hobby that we can do together. We're both competitive people. I, I played basketball in college. So I like to joke that this is like how I get my competitive edge out now. So yeah, we do that. We spend, we'll actually probably start picking up on our stuff for that soon. We'll start like washing the cows, clipping them, practicing with them, and I'll probably pick the shows that we'll go to and and see how it goes. But it's it's really fun. It's addicting, I think. I, that's that's how I got involved was in the 4-H program. I did my first cow show and I, that is what sucked me into this. I was hooked. So can't, can't keep me away. <laughs> now, do you have a favorite cow? Oh, I have lots of favorite cows for very different reasons. It's so hard to pick one. But if I had to pick one favorite cow, it would be this cow, her name is Etta, E-T-T-A. And she is the first cow that my sister and I ever bought together. And she is alive and kicking in well today. And we did show her. She's retired now from her show days. But I would have to say, if I had to pick an all-time favorite, it would be Etta because she was really what started it all for me and my sister. And then she was actually the first Holstein cow to enter Spring Run Dairy. A Holstein is your cliché black-and-white spotted dairy cow. Holsteins originated in Holland and are known as the world's highest-producing dairy animal. So Dan had Jersey cows his whole life. 
The Jersey cow is a fawn-colored British breed of cow, smaller than a Holstein and known for producing less milk. But the cream factor is heavier, and Jerseys are less prone to some diseases than Holsteins. Not to mention, they have less fertility problems and boast a longer lifespan than a Holstein. That was his herd. And then we met, and when we decided it was time for our cow to join his herd, she and she's an all pretty much all white Holstein, so she really stuck out in this herd of little brown cows. But I would say she has to be my all-time favorite. Now, are you Jersey or Holstein? What, what kind of cows do you have now? So we're a little bit of a mix. I would say the herd is about 75% Jersey, about 25% Holstein. I think we'll primarily probably always be a Jersey herd just because we both really like Jerseys. We like their milk is a little bit higher in, in butterfat for bottling our own milk. So it works out nicely. But um you know, it's good to have some Holsteins too. We primarily show our Holsteins, so that's why they've kind of expanded over the years. So I, th- I think I've hooked Dan onto the, the Holstein breed, but we'll probably always primarily be a Jersey herd with a with a few Holsteins sprinkled in. Well, you got to have Jerseys. You're in New Jersey. It just kind of makes exactly. sense. Exactly. It's just like, like, why wouldn't you have them? Yeah. And, and, and jerseys keep things interesting because they have some really funky personalities. Like they are, they're so curious. They're, I, it's not funny because they're always breaking things, but <laughs> they, they keep it interesting. They keep us on our toes. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I think it's so funny that a dairy princess came onto his farm and that was it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I like to joke that it was fate if, if you believe in that, but it, it seems like it has to be right because I, Grew up with no farming background. My parents are from northern New Jersey. Like, where did this come from? I, I, I think it had to be. Sarah Linus, Dairy Princess. She and Dan, together with his parents, are swimming against the dairy tides. Small dairies are struggling, and many of them are closing nationwide. Let me just give you one little example. In the three decades between 1987 and 2007, the United States lost nearly 100,000 small dairy farms. 100,000. And the number of failed small dairy farms continues to rise. The most recent Census of Agriculture conducted by the USDA in 2017 counted just 30,373 small commercial dairy farms in the United States with between 10 and 199 cows, like Spring Run Dairy. As New Jersey loses more and more of them, Spring Run Dairy is making a go of it pasteurized, cream-lined, non-homogenized, white and chocolate milk, right out of their own creamery. That is the key to controlling their product and their prices, as well as marketing directly to their friends and neighbors right in their own state. Their actions, in case you think it's just about milk, fortify their community, local businesses there, the vibrancy of their region with fresh local products and busy farm. I've been thinking about something that Sarah said earlier. 
It's kind of been following me around in my head. I think, to some extent, it is at the heart of Talk Farm to me. It really bears repeating here. We want to know where our food is coming from and how it's made. I think the tough part is the education piece, because for so long, if you weren't involved in, I'll just use dairy farming specifically, just because that's what I know best. But so if if you weren't involved in dairy farming, right, you didn't really know what was going on behind the product. All you knew is that you could go to the store and, and get your milk. It's our responsibility to share with them, this is what we do, and this is why we do it. There's so much more you have to share, because there's so much that people don't know about about farming and dairy farming and, and the food industry, you have to take a step back and, and share maybe a little of the backstory. Yes, that's it, Sarah. Whether we admit it or not, we want to know what's going on behind our products. We should want to know that, right? I feel like this is something important. Thanks, Dairy Princess, for sharing your behind the product story. This is Talk Farm to Me. I am your host, Farm Girl, or Dana. That's my real name, the person behind the product. And you're hearing sounds from the farm and music designed by my new partner, Asher Griffith. It's good to have someone make us all sound so good. Thanks, Asher. Until next week, keep thinking about Sarah and Spring Run Dairy. Lots of wisdom in there. Also, for those of you for whom farmers are feeling more and more important the more you listen here. I would love to invite you to participate in For Farmers, our community and movement to support farmers in the hard work they do producing food and fiber and fuel and for sharing their backstories with us. You can find out more on xoxofarmgirl.com or in the show notes here where you will also find all the links I promised. XOXO.